Hello and welcome to The Hannah Hundle Show. I'm your host, Hannah Hundle, and The Hannah Hundle Show is a syndicated program. Here on The Hannah Hundle Show, we feature the world's foremost experts for groundbreaking discussion within their respective fields. Spanning medicine, science, technology, business, politics, policy, law, and more. Join me, your host, Hannah Hundle, on a mission to unpack and understand how contemporary high-impact issues are being tackled by the world's most influential leaders. For today's episode, I'm bringing you an installment in our 2020 U.S. presidential series as we have an interview with Democratic candidate Marianne Williamson. Ms. Williamson is an author and spiritual activist. Four of her 13 books were declared New York Times number one bestsellers. She has been working in the nonprofit sector for many years through Project Angel Food and Peace Alliance, two organizations she launched. Ms. Williamson has a history of making comments around the cruciality of prayer and medicine that some have viewed controversially, including catching some flack for implying that mandatory vaccinations are, quote, Orwellian and, quote, draconian. Ms. Williamson has since sought to clarify these comments and insists that she is not, quote, skeptical about vaccinations, but rather, quote, skeptical about big pharma in general. There's a lot to unpack here, as you can see, so we're going to talk to her about her positions on healthcare and a number of other issues today. So please join me now in welcoming to the program, Marianne Williamson. Ms. Williamson, I wanted to begin by asking you about the ethos and impetus of the campaign you're running. You're not a career politician. You're an author who writes about spirituality. And in your previously unsuccessful bid for the U.S. House of Representatives to represent California's 33rd Congressional District, you spoke about a, quote, politics of conscience, a politics of the heart. So given some of the language by which you characterized your political aspirations, it seems to me that you're trying to tap into something very different in the electorate. Can you talk me through that? What is the sort of moral evocation or consciousness that you're trying to tap into in the American people? I don't think it's a matter of what I'm tapping into. I think the issue is what I'm speaking from within myself. And I think people hear you on the level that you speak from. I'm having a conversation, which to me is the conversation everybody's having in the 21st century. To me, the issue is not that I'm bringing something new so much as that conventional politics is something old. Mm. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's like mm. black and white, and the mm. 21st century mentality is, is color. There are more colors in the palette. The 21st century mindset is more integrated. It is more holistic. It, it, it includes into our, um, in, into our worldview. It includes in our problem-solving modalities many more layers than just addressing symptoms, many more layers than just externalities. It's moved beyond the mechanistic paradigm of seeing the world as a machine. We see the world in the 21st century as a living organism. It's a whole different way of seeing things, which I believe is simply where people are today. It's the zeitgeist of this moment. So it's interesting that it looks like I'm bringing something new when really it's that I'm being where we are now. Mm. And so it looks so radically different. It doesn't look radically different. This is how people speak today. It's not radically different to how mm-hmm. we look at life today in American civilization. It's just that politics 
is this it, it's this lumbering institutional dense materially dense um container that is dangerously obsolete and i say dangerously because it's not a container for the kind of thinking and um perspective and problem solving and deep conversations that we need to be having and i think that an example of that is what you're saying if my talking in a way that seems to me pretty much common sense is seen as that radically different we have a problem here <laughs> i want to talk about your advocacy for two new cabinet level positions you want a us department of peace and a U.S. Department of Children and Youth. How do you see this panning out? What present gaps would those kinds of departments fill that you believe we're missing right now? Well, first of all, it's interesting that you say what we're missing, and I think that points to something really important. Two, two, two things I want to say about that. First of all, everywhere I go in this country, one of the things that's very clear to me, it's clear to me about children and dealing with traumatized children. Uh, it's clear to me about peace building. It's clear to me about the environmental crisis. It's clear to me about racial healing. It's clear to me about any issue. We have in this country the people. We have in this country the projects. We have in this country the best practices. And this connects to what you and I were saying before. America is mm -hmm. already there. The issue is these do not tend to be the people practices and projects that are resourced. These do not tend to be the people's processes and practices that are supported by our government. These are often uh, private and, 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 and nonprofit entities that are struggling for a $50,000 grant here or $100,000 grant there, while millions and literally billions is given by our own government to the forces that actually make the work of such people more difficult. So a lot of what I'm talking about is harnessing what already exists. But secondly, even within the government, if you look at something like peace building, our State Department already has peace building agencies. Our State Department already has USAID. We have um, a $17 billion USAID or humanitarian assistance budget. We have a little bit less than a billion dollars given to the peace building agencies. Now, that sounds extraordinary. Obviously, it's an extraordinary amount of money. But contrast that to $750 billion that is given to our military every year. So what I'm saying with the Department of Peace is I want a robust partnership and a, a, a far more equal partnership to efforts at peace building. So a lot of it is coordinative. A lot of it is what's already happening there given a bigger piece at the table, uh, a, a much more powerful place at the table. The peace builders now do not have an equal place at the table when it comes to our national security agenda. So it's kind of like when we formed the Department of Homeland Security. A lot of that was less bringing in new things and more coordinating things that were already there. So when it comes to the Department of Peace, there's a lot of coordination of things that already exist. When it comes to the Department of Child Children and Youth, it is bringing in a lot of um, of expertise and knowledge, for instance, when you're talking about trauma-informed education, when you're talking about wrap community wraparound services, violence prevention, anti-bullying, um, a lot of that does not currently function within the purview of the government, but totally needs to. Because when we, we have 
we have Department of Education, obviously, but if as important as our educational transformation is, we have millions of American children who are traumatized before they even reach preschool. So we have to start, and we have to start with a high mm-hmm. infant mortality, not high, but relatively high infant mortality rate. We have to uh, start with our relatively high maternal mortality rate. You know, everything is mm-hmm. within those first eight years. We now know things about what happens within the brain of a human being within the first eight years that we didn't even know 50 years ago, much less know when our economic system was invented or much less know, you know, when our governmental system was designed. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is bringing in the new, but like I said, even bringing in the new or things that are already out there and uh, coordinating what already exists. You mentioned the high infant mortality rate. And that leads right to the question of health inequities, right? Because we see disparities, especially for infant mortality, along lines of raised class and geography in this country. And, you know, questions about reproductive rights are tightly integrated with questions of health disparities. You know, women's reproductive rights is an issue that was really central to your former campaign for a House of Representatives seat. Is that a policy issue that's central to this campaign as well? Well, yeah, and not only that, but I I I hold in my in, in my view of this that the effort to limit a woman's reproductive rights is not just an attack on our healthcare, and it's not just a, an attack on our reproductive rights. It's an attack on our power. Mm-hmm. I think it's part of a larger blowback to women's uh, empowerment um, that is deeply concerning. Um, you know, any time in life, whether it's a civilization or an individual, often you take two steps forward and then one step back. And I think we're in a second phase. Susan Faludi had written a book. Um, I forget what it was called. It was about um, low back to, to, to the first major wave of feminism around the, you know, well, it was actually second wave was the 1970s, et cetera. And I think something similar is going on now. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I feel I, the way I look at what you just said is within a larger panoply of areas where women's right to live totally equal, equal and equally empowered lives is challenged by an ancient status quo. Finally, I wanted to ask you about the nonprofit you co-founded back in 1980, Project Angel Food. I understand that nonprofit served mostly homeless and LGBTQ communities, particularly impacted by issues like the health disparities we were just speaking about. So I'm curious what particular lens you think your nonprofit background gives you in terms of understanding the social issues in this country. Uh, Project Angel Food uh, was founded to uh, provide uh, meals, a kind of Meals on Wheels program to homebound people with AIDS. Uh, people with other life challenges and illnesses were certainly included, but AIDS was a crisis at that time. Anyone who lived through that was changed. It was like going through a war. Um, I've never been through a war, but in a way that was one. Um, if you were, if you contracted the virus, it was an, really, pretty much an automatic death sentence because there was in those first few years no medical um, ameliorative at all. I mean, it wasn't like the medical community wasn't trying. They were trying very hard, but it was a devastatingly destructive disease. And to be in the middle of that, so much, so much suffering, but so much bravery, 
um, I was living in Los Angeles at the time, which was particularly hard hit by the disease, also began doing a lot of that work in New York, which was also hit hard. But not only the people who contracted the virus, but then there was somebody who knew someone, loved someone, a brother, a son. And in Los Angeles also, because uh, the LGBTQ population uh, was and continues to be such a vital part of the entertainment industry, the main industry of the city was so hard hit. But even there, the love was so great. The, the way people showed up um, compassionately was so great. The sense that we all had that all we had was our love for one another. You, you, you live a different way when there's that much suffering all around you. It's, um, you just, you're not the same person that you would have been. You know, whenever you are, and I've seen this many times, whenever someone, let's say, is diagnosed with a life-challenging illness or some other equally devastating news, so many of the ultimately unimportant preoccupations that dominate our lives on a regular basis just fall away. Just fall away in the first five minutes. The unimportant, so many ultimately unimportant things are given such exalted status in our lives today, while deeply meaningful things are cast to the periphery. That changes when some shock comes into the system. You know, I think we're going through it right now with the Amazon fires. Mm-hmm. You know, it, this is one of those moments of like being reminded of what's important, you know. It's like that song, the Joni Mitchell song, you don't know what you got till it's gone. <laughs> um, and mm. that's, that's what I would say. And then when you, when you exit a period like that, you know, when the AIDS crisis ultimately, I'm not saying that it's not still a crisis in the lives of those who are dealing with it, but it's not as mass epidemic in this country the way it was. You, you don't go back to being who you were before. You know, those things transform you. And you are, I always, I always feel that suffering gives you an x-ray vision into the suffering of others. And so does close proximity to suffering. You have mm-hmm. a radar. It's like I knew a man once. I dated a man many years ago been in Vietnam. He was a Vietnam veteran. And he had this uncanny ability to walk into a room and he could see a bunch of people and he could point to a person and say he was there, point to another person and say he was there. Mm. I say, how do you know? He just knew it was uncanny. And I think that, I think that's true of a lot of things. If you, I see that with alcoholics and addicts, how sometimes they can just, they can read another one on the other side of the room. Mm. I think that once you have dwelled in the waters of the deeper suffering of life, you, you see it in in others in ways that you would not have. And you feel a call to address it in a way that you would not have before. And that was an interview with 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. You have been listening to The Hannah Hundle Show. I'm your host, Hannah Hundle, and I thank you for tuning in. We'll catch you next week.